0: Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as He makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Uh, as you heard, we are exploring the exodus uh, of the Israelites out of Egypt this morning. And while this naturally leads us to talking about things like the promised land, the nation of Israel, um, I just want to be aware of the current context of Israel-Palestine relations. Obviously, we did not plan this. Um, and so this, is just, this is, it was heavier on my heart this morning. Um, felt pretty complicated and, and felt like I had to work through a lot of things. Um, I do think it's important to state that the nation of Israel at the time of our book, uh, at the time of Exodus, is different than the current nation of Israel. Um, So to extrapolate particular realities of the Exodus story directly, I think would be careless at best. Uh, We're also talking about liberation from oppression this morning, as is natural to talk about with the Exodus, right? And so this means that some of the points may apply for Israel, but they might also apply for Palestine when we talk about liberation. God is on the side of the oppressed against the oppressor, even if the oppressor was previously someone who was oppressed, right? Right? And so I, I really look to um, the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa uh, in situations like this. Um, if you don't know, he was, sort of, he was in South Africa during apartheid and then was part of the restoration of South Africa during uh, like post-apartheid, right? Um, and I think he is someone who gained power in a situation where he was previously part of the oppressed. And, and when, as we look at what he did, he used that power for accountability and restoration, not revenge. And so I, I just think, um, yeah, he he, and um, some other South African leaders are just really good people to look to in terms of just like, what does it look like um, to sort of respond when maybe an extremist group has has lashed out against a nation, right? Um, I won't talk much about the situation this morning um, as I said, I was planning this before all of this happened. But I am very open to sitting down and chatting with anyone who wants to process things. Um, I'm I'm very open, yeah, outside of Sundays to talk about with you. Th- but I just felt like it was like necessary to say like I'm not going to talk a ton about that this morning, and I recognize that that might be a little bit weird with the current story we're going through. Makes sense? Okay. With that, I do want to um, read a prayer for us this morning uh, on the relations between Palestine and Israel. Um, It's from uh, a woman who uses the title on all of her Instagram, things like that, called Black Liturgies, Um, and she writes a lot of prayers in response to particular things going on in our our nation, in our world, and she's someone I really, um, yeah, really like to read um, in times like this. So I would love to read a prayer of hers. Um, I'm going to come down here, sorry for those of you at home, um, just so I can read it a little bit better. Um, Yeah, let's pray. Sacred voice, release release us from those empty cravings for unity that come at no cost to the oppressor. Lead us towards spaces of costly advocate, advocacy. We confess that in speaking up on behalf of the oppressed, we too soon become enamored with the sound of our own voices. Our egos spoil even our best intentions. Show us when the voices of the vulnerable are being drowned out by the cacophony of the privileged. Help us to dissenter ourselves in a world that perpetually eclipses the voices of the globally oppressed. Guide us into a solidarity that demands something of us. Let us learn to risk ourselves on behalf of the vulnerable, believing that when one of us is harmed, we all are. But keep us from that obsessive attunement, which is prone towards savior complexes and feigned allyship. Remind us that we are not the heroes, of our story or heroes of every story amen all right so we're gonna go ahead and jump into uh, Exodus the Exodus story uh, now as you know the Exodus story not just the book but the actual event of the Exodus of the Jewish people from Egypt is the most important event in the Hebrew Bible and subsequently the most quoted and referred to event in the Hebrew Bible Hebrew Bible meaning Old Testament, right? Its importance in the story of God's people is impossible to overstate, right? Let me show you a few references, just a few references from the Old Testament. Leviticus 11:45. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Joshua 24:17. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and who did these great signs in our sight, and preserved us uh, through all the way in which we went, and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed, right? Numbers fifteen forty one, Deuteronomy 5, 6, Judges 6, 8, 1 Samuel 10, 18, 1 Kings eight twenty one, Psalm 81, 105, 136, Jeremiah 7.22, these are all direct references to the Exodus, and there are tons more. I just picked a few, right? There are hundreds of ret- references to the event of the Exodus in some way, right? It is littered throughout the Old Testament as a defining moment for God and a defining moment for the tribe of Israel. But the references to the Exodus are not just limited to the Old Testament and not just limited to the Israelites, right? In fact, they're not even limited to the Bible. Sometime in the mid-1800s, I think it was about 1864, a song called Go Down, Moses became a rallying cry for African Americans seeking the abolition of slavery. I want to read you some of the lyrics. When Israel was in Egypt's hand, let my people go. Oppressed so hard they could not stand, let my people go. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt's land, tell old Pharaoh. To let my people go." Of course, the use of the Exodus did not stop for African Americans in the mid-1800s or even post-slavery, right? Andrew Young, he was a pastor and early leader of the Civil Rights Movement who wrote a book on the Civil Rights Movement. In one of the sections, he was explaining a march he and a man named Wyatt Walker, uh, Wyatt Walker, led on Easter Day in 1964. Um, I'm going to read you some of the words of his this morning. Um, but for some context, as they were marching, Bull Connor, who maybe is a familiar name to some, he's the commissioner, he was the commissioner of public safety in Birmingham, Alabama at the time, known for his racism. He, uh, this is where the march was taking place, Birmingham, 1964, Easter Day. He had caught wind of the march. He, uh, he brought his police with dogs and firemen with hoses, and they created a barrier Uh, so that the march could not continue on the road that they were on, right? So as the 5,000 people in the march approached, Bull Connor yelled, turn this people around. And here are Andrew Young's words that I want to read for you. Wyatt Walker and I were leading the march. I can't say we knew what to do. I know I didn't want to turn the march around. I asked the people to get down on their knees and offer a prayer. Suddenly, Reverend Charles Billups one of the most faithful and fearless leaders of the old Alabama Christian movement for human rights jumped up and hollered, the Lord is with this movement, off your knees, we're going on. Stunned at first, Bull Connor yelled, stop him, stop him. But none of the police moved a muscle. Even the police dogs that had been growling and straining at their leashes were now perfectly calm. I saw one fireman, tears in his eyes, just let the hose drop at his feet. Our people marched right between the red fire trucks, singing, "I want Jesus to walk with me." Bull Connor's policemen had refused to arrest us, his firemen had refused to hose us, and his dogs had refused to bite us. It was quite a moment to witness. I'll never forget one old woman who became ecstatic when she marched through the barricades. As she passed through, as she passed through. She shouted, great God Almighty done part of the Red Sea one more time. The Exodus story has been prov- proven to be vital to understanding the character of God and his relationship to his people who are suffering. But why? Of all the stories of God and his people throughout the Hebrew Bible, why is the Exodus story the one referred to over and over I believe it's because the Exodus story is a story of liberation. Our world constantly reminds us that it is broken, does it not? We don't have to go very far back in our service to realize that, right, this morning. Whether we consider things like institutional racism, sex, exploitation of women, the most recent realities of Palestine-Israel, we are constantly, constantly reminded of Fleming Rutledge's words in our world something is terribly wrong and cries out to be put right see the story of the exodus is a recognition of that wrongness wrongness but i think it resonates with so many people because it's a story it's not a story where the wrongness stays put right or where that wrongness wins it's a story of people recognizing the wrongness crying out to yahweh and yahweh responds to responds to that wrongness by putting things closer to right. The Exodus story reminds us that God cares and that he has the power to show that care. The story of Exodus is a story of the God of liberation. And this story is not just a reminder of what God has done. It serves as a reminder of what God can and will do. Back to Fleming Rutledge's words. She says, the Exodus narrative continues to hold out the promise of life around the world over the centuries as people who have been oppressed cling to the promise that God is acting among them. With with this in mind, with this idea of who God is, how he responds to these situations, this is how I'm gonna use the rest of my time. I want to define liberation by fleshing out what it looks like, both in a collective way and in a personal way. And then I'm going to pull out a, Q fee, uh, Q, a few key elements that make liberation possible. With me? All right. All right. So let's start with liberation uh, in sort of a collective way, right? Actually, let me let me start with this. Why do I want to flesh out both the collective and the personal? Uh, I hit on this a few weeks ago in my sermon on counting the cost of justice, but I believe one of the major flaws of the ways in which particularly Americans think through their faith, Christian faith is the way in which we draw distinctions and groups based on if we think about the physical or the spiritual a little bit more, right? It's like, oh, uh, you. Uh, I, I sort of use this example of like just preach the gospel. You're talking too much about social issues and, and physical issues, right? Now, I made the argument a few weeks ago that justice is gospel work, so I won't revisit that this morning, but I bring this up again particularly with the Exodus, because we can do one of two things with it, like I just said. We can look at the the event of the Exodus as an isolated event of the physical liberation of the Israelites, and we can miss out on some of the spiritual components of it, right? Or, and this one I think most American Christians struggle with, we can fully spiritualize the Exodus as people who are not among the oppressed, us and miss out on the beauty of God physically liberating his people, thus diminishing the power of the exodus, right? So this morning, I want us to consider what both of these things look like. What does liberation lo- work look like when it is physically liberating people from bondage, oppression, things like that? And what does spiritual liberation look like for us, and how does it impact our day-to-day? So let's go ahead and look at the foundations of liberation, of physical liberation. What is holistic liberation look like? So, if liberation is freedom from imprisonment, slavery, oppression, what does that freedom look like? So, in order to to consider that, I want to look at three elements of liberation. You guys aren't necessarily with me yet, but we'll get there, okay? Those three are liberation of the body, liberation of the soul, and liberation of the mind, okay? Body, soul, and mind. Now, Just to give you a little bit of a heads up as I talk about this, I am going to hit on more of like the spiritual aspects of liberation uh, because I talked a couple of weeks ago ago, about the work of justice and things like that. I just wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up. But I want to use the situation of the Israelites and the Exodus to sort of lay our framework so we can know what this looks like. Okay, so first off, liberation of the body. By liberation of the body, I mean what are people set free from? That's sort of the question we're answering. What are people set free from? This one probably is the most obvious in the case of the Israelites, as they are physically enslaved by the Egyptians, right? So what are they free from? They're free from slavery, right? But I believe a big part of the work of justice and on being on the side of the oppressed is being able to see oppression when it's happening, even in its more subtle forms, right? And the greatest way to understand the subtlety of the ways in which oppression can work and understand what those who are oppressed need, I think it's a very simple thing to do, but it's often, or it's very seldomly practiced. And that is we have to center and listen to the voices of the oppressed. Center and listen to the voices of the oppressed. We will never be able to fully understand the scope of oppression and what is needed in order to consider what people need to be free from if we're not listening to those who are oppressed, right? I think a big issue, uh, it's sort of like the savior complex of being like, I do see a problem, right? And this is exactly how I'm going to fix it. And then all it, it, it doesn't fix anything because you don't understand the nuance of those who are living through it every single day, right? This could look like reading people uh, who maybe have experienced oppression or who are currently experiencing oppression. There are podcasts that Center voices um, There's research you can do on different events and the ways in which their experience um, has done this I would not necessarily suggest this book um, Actually, I'm forgetting what it's called right now. I should have written this down But I do have this there's this book. That's really really thick. I think it's called the other side uh, It tells the story of slavery, but in the words of those who were enslaved um, And it and just things like that where it's like we're reorienting who's who gets to tell the story and what the nuance is in that, right? So that's liberation of the body. What are people freed from? Next is liberation of the soul. What are people freed to, right? Liberation does not just mean getting people freed from their chains, but it involves creating pathways after those chains for freedom through abundant life to root itself. That, That was a lot of words. What do I mean? God was not just bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, but he was bringing them to the promised land, right? This movement to a new land where they could establish themselves is freedom of the soul because when you don't have to live in fear fear every single moment of an outburst from a slave driver or on the whims of the pharaoh, you have the capacity to consider what your life may look like beyond that day, right? What does oppression do? It forces you to just think about your one day. If I can just get through this one day, and what freedom of the soul, when people are set free to something, they can begin to think about beyond that day, right? The ability of imagination is a privilege not afforded to the oppressed. The ability of imagination is a privilege not afforded to the oppressed, but it is absolutely a vital part of liberation. Life abundance flows from the ability to even consider what your life may look like past today, right? So liberation of the body, what are people freed from? Liberation of the soul, what are people freed to? And finally, liberation of the mind. How is this liberation continued? In our story, what is the response of the Israelites once it gets hard and they see the Egyptians coming onto them? You guys remember this? Let's look back at the passage, verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord, They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. What's going on here? See, the Israelites are, in a way, revising history, right? When Aaron and Moses show up to the Israelites for, for the first time in chapter four, their response was not, leave us alone, we want to continue uh, the enslavement, right? Their, their response was to worship God and, and to celebrate Aaron and Moses for coming for the liberation. Now, there were moments that we talked about in previous weeks that were hard, but their initial response was not, leave us alone. It was to, to go ahead and lean into that freedom, right? Right? saying like, well, yeah, let's do this, and worshiping God as a result of him showing up. I think we as humans have a tendency to romanticize the past when things get hard, right? And sometimes in trauma, it is easier in order to rela- rationalize what is happening to you to adopt aspects of the oppression as your identity, right? It's like, maybe I deserve this, or like, this is just part of what happens to people like me. And that's just, that's not okay. That's not true, Right? So part of liberation work for yourself or others is to remind those being liberated of their true ongoing identity and a reminder that they can and they are free, not just physically but mentally, right? When we think about the Jim Crow era, obviously like slavery had not been continued at this time, right? They were, black people were free to move about society. And yet there were reminders everywhere that they were viewed as second-class citizens, the work of liberation has to continue to fight lies like this, right? As well as the internalized lies during the bondage or oppression. This is why I believe the Exodus is so often mentioned throughout all of the Bible. It is a constant reminder that the Israelites are free and are continuing to be free that they have been liberated by the great liberator, right? That we must be constantly we must constantly be reminded Of the freedom we now live in. Okay, that's that's the physical aspects of liberation. I just sort of wanted to set the stage. I know I've left a lot on the bone, but you guys know me. We're gonna continue to talk about this in the future, so don't you worry. Um, So now I want to consider, like, what are these three questions, the liberation of the body, what are we set free from, to, and continued? What does that look like for our spiritual lives, right? First question, what are we set free from? Y'all know this, we are set free from sin, right? But what does that mean? We are set free from the bondage of sin. We are freed and will be freed from three elements of sin. First, we are freed from the penalty of sin, right? This is the past element of sin. Yeah, you get to see all the answers here, but um, let's just focus on the penalty first. This is the past element of sin. What happened when we put our trust in Christ is that he took on the penalty of sin for us, right? The penalty of sin, that which we have accrued, as a result of our sin, is death, spiritual death, separation from God. And yet we have been justified from that penalty, right? We are freed from that penalty. We are also freed from the power of sin. This one is harder for people to believe, honestly, as you talk to people. This is like the present element of sin. While we have been saved from the penalty of sin, y'all know this, but we don't often like then just stop sinning, right? I didn't like sprout wings and like float perfectly everywhere now that I've become a Christian, right? That's just not how it works. Sin still has a presence in our life and can often rear its ugly head, right? And yet we have been given the Holy Spirit as an indwelling presence to live the life we were intended to live in step with God and not with sin. And one day, this is the last one, this is the future element of sin, one day we will be freed from the presence of sin altogether, and this is our hope. In the new heavens and new earth, sin will no longer be present in form or in temptation. We will live in perfect garden harmony with God, right? Now, but I want us to like, truly consider this, the depths of what we have been freed from. Like, What does this look like practically, that we have been freed from sin, I think one risk of talking about the spiritual elements of liberation is that it can belittle like how big maybe physical liberation is because we don't necessarily see it or feel it as much. So it'll be like, I think one of the risks is like, if I talk about the spiritual elements of liberation, am I just belittling like the exodus of the um, Israelites? But I actually think like in relating our sin and our freedom from bondage of sin to the physical liberation of the Israelites, we're actually pointing out like how big our liberation truly has become, right? Like how much we have been liberated from, how much our spiritual bondage really had a hold on us. Like truly, like truly consider what you have been freed from, the depth of your sin. Sometimes I just consider the ways in which sin has reared its ugly head in my life in the past, right? The things I've done, the ways I've treated people, Particular ways of thinking that I've had that were dehumanizing to particular people. And honestly, like, it makes me sick sometimes to just think about the things I've done, considering how deep some of my sin went. And then not only to consider that, but how have I hurt fellowship with the one I was intended to fellowship with, right? How have I hurt my relationship with God? But God, he has freed me from the penalty of that sin to be back in relationship with him, Right? We don't have to live in the shame or the guilt that came with our past, right? That has come with even some of our future or present or future sins, right? God has freed me from the power of sin to continue to walk with him. He freed me from the penalty of sin to come back into relationship with him. And one day when I'm with him for eternity, I'll be freed from the presence of sin altogether, right? We have not just been set free from sin, though. We also have been set free to, right? What does it look like for us, the liberation of the soul? We've been set free to the identity of children of God. We have been set free to eternal life. We have been set free to enjoy the presence of God forever on both sides of eternity. You see, if God just set us free from our sin without replacing it with himself, we'd still have that hole that we were trying to fill. But God, in renewing our hearts, has given us freedom to live freely. God has given us freedom to live freely, to pursue him without shame, without guilt, without fear, right? We have moved from death to life, from sin to him. And then finally, in order for us to continue to live in this freedom, we have to continue to remind ourselves of our identity as liberated, as the set free. What does this look like? let's look at Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your, body, offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test what it, uh, and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do not be conformed to the world, which bind us, binds us up in its ways, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, you have already been made new, right? You have already been made new, but you have to renew your mind. You have to remind yourself of that being made new, right? What does this look like? This means replacing the lies that you are what you've done, that you are the worst thing that you've done, right? You have to replace that that you are your particular sin and replace it with the identity of a daughter or son of God, right? The one who is loved by God and the one who, is, who God is proud of. Our liberation, the way we think about being set free from, to, and continued, is vital to live in our callings that God has called us to, uh, to be both loved and to love in return, right? Right? So to end my time this morning, I want to consider one more question. If this is what liberation looks like, right? Liberation of the body, of the mind, of the soul. Liberation from liberation to and liberation continued. I want to ask one more question. Where does liberation begin? How does it start? What are elements to make it happen? I want to go back to the text in order to show us this. So after the people, you know, the people like cry out, Have you brought us here to die in the desert instead of to live in Egypt, right? Um, After the people cried that out, they didn't ask for Moses to liberate them. Look at what Moses says in verse 13. Moses answers the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Lord will will fight for you. You need only to be still. You need only to be still. I love this line, right? We know what happens in Exodus. God uses Moses to part the Red Sea and the people walk through. Now, objectively, if the people are walking through, they're not standing still, right? So what, is, what does God mean here? Moses here is speaking to who has the power in the situation, right? In our entire reading of Exodus up to this point, we have, sh- we have seen that Pharaoh thought he had the power, right? Who is the God of the Israelites? Who is Yahweh? I don't know him, right? And yet, Yahweh, the Lord, the great I Am, has had the power in every single situation, right? And this is still true in the midst of the wilderness, next to the sea, as the I- Egyptians bear down on them right? This is still true. The power to liberate the Israelites would not come from themselves. It was coming from God. And what did they do to deserve it? Nothing, right? Be still. The power of liberation is God's grace. God's grace is what attuned his ear to the Israelites' cries. His grace is why he placed himself in the burning bush to call Moses to the liberation of the Israelites, Right? It's his grace that protects the Israelites during the plagues and during the Passover, and it was by God's grace that the Israelites were going to pass through the Red Sea, their faith in his grace. A quick note on faith. I want you to think about this. I promise you that the experience for the Israelites in this moment was not monolithic. It did not look the same for each Israelite, right? I can guarantee that each Israelite responded differently. Like, as they're walking through the water, think about this. Like, I, there, there had to be at least one that was like strutting through, like in confidence, right? Just like, yeah, this is awesome. God has got me. I'm doing great, right? And I'm sure there were others that had to be dragged between those two walls of water, right? That they were terrified. I, I mean, that would have been me, right? Terrified to walk through the water. And yet, they all made it through, right? Your passing through is not determined by the quality of your faith, It's not determined by how you walk in between that water, right? It is determined by the object of your faith, namely God and his grace through Jesus, right? And then one more element of God's liberation that we see in our story this morning. You see, in the passage here in verse 13 that's still up, what is Moses responding to again? The Israelites, right? Let's look at some of the wording that they use uh, back in verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. So they're terrified. They cry out to the Lord. They say all that stuff about dying in the wilderness. Then Moses says the stuff about, like, no, don't worry. God is going to save us. So he says all that. And after Moses tells them that they need to only be still, what happens is God comes to Moses. And God says this. Let's look at what God says. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Now question, beforehand, was it Moses who cried out to God? No, it was not Moses who cried out to God. It was the Israelites, right? But Moses was viewed by God as representing the rest of the Israelites, as the one The one who took on the identity of the all. And what is Moses called to do after this? He's called to raise his staff and to part the sea. And when he does this, how would the Israelites view him? As the one who represented God and his power, right? See, Moses is identified both with the Israelites in their fear of calling out. He's also identified with God in the power of being able to part the Red Sea He is the one who is seen as being in the middle of God and man, right? Moses is the man in the middle, the mediator of liberation. Now, Moses was a great mediator, but his mediation led to a one-time liberation for one group of people, right? You see, Moses' life was used as an example for a greater mediator, one that would not just set us free one time, but one whose mediation, whose sacrifice, would be done once to set those who trusted in him free for all time. You see, Jesus, much like Moses, is identified with God's power, right? Think about first, or Colossians 1. says that in Jesus, all things were created. For Jesus, all things were created. And by Jesus, everything is sustained. He continuously controls the waters, right? And Jesus much like Moses, but in far greater ways, was identified with the people. He was identified with our sin. Although he knew no sin, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, right? Jesus' death and resurrection because of his mediation has led to our liberation. We have been invited to walk between the waters from captivity to freedom, from slavery to liberation, from death to life. I invite you this morning to walk between those waters, right? Be baptized out of our former ways of life and into the new, right? Not just set free from, not just set free to, but a continued liberation as we walk in this life together. Live in the freedom God has freely offered. Let me end with Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.